Well, for, um, for our guests and for anybody who's not aware, we've been making our way through the book of Acts. We're doing a survey over the book of Acts in Sunday school. Um, last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2. We only did one chapter. And in Acts chapter 2, what we saw there was um, the, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church at the festival of Pentecost. And when we looked at that, we saw how the Spirit came with just a, a great power. It was with a loud rushing wind, it says, that the, the Spirit came with. And uh, a huge crowd was gathered of all the Jews who were there to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. Um, they came due to the sound, and they were gathered. And we saw that the, the disciples, as well as the apostles, they were given this uncanny ability to speak in different languages, to where all these people who gathered from other areas were able to understand um, the preaching of, of God's um, great works in their own language. It was, it was a miracle. And uh, so with the crowd gathered, Peter stands up. Peter the apostle stood up and he preached. He preached the gospel to the people. He preached Christ to the people. He took full advantage of this, this great um, crowd that was gathered. And the text tells us that 3,000 people were saved on that day, 3,000 people were saved. Um, that, that was quite amazing. And then we ran out of time, and so I ended up reading a, a verse from the last section of chapter 2. I actually had to read it in the worship service during my announcement time. Um, but I'm just going to read that verse just once again. It's Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42, uh, this just kind of describes the early life of these, of these Christians in the early days of the church. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so I, I, when I read that, I just think how sweet that, that fellowship was and that time was in the early church. I mean, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, which most people think that's a reference to taking the Lord's Supper. Um, just sweet fellowship in those early days. Um, so that, that was a beautiful time. Um, as we go on and, and, and read about how the church's lifestyle ends up being, it's not quite so sweet at some periods. It gets a little more difficult for the church. But in these first days, it was, it was a sweet fellowship. Okay, so we're going to go on. Today we're really going to try to cover chapters 3 through 5. We're going to try to... We're going to try to get it all. Forgive me if it sounds like I'm rushing. I, there's just a lot here in the book of Acts, especially in these early chapters. The, far, the farther we get along, the more it becomes more narrative, and we'll be able to move a lot faster. But I mean, these first chapters are just so much. Um, so what we're going to see, chapters 3, 4, and 5, is really we're going to start to get just some more detail into what exactly was going on with the early church and, and more specifically what the apostles are up to. We're going to get some more details exactly what they're up to. And in case you can't guess, what the apostles will be up to, well, they're preaching, and they're preaching Christ. That's what they're up to. And so let's begin here um, in chapter 3. Maybe, John, will you read some text for us? Read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It's here what we're going to see again is another miracle the Spirit's going to provide, and Peter again is going to take advantage of that miracle in crowds, and he's going to preach again. And so, John, if you'll read verses 1 through 8 for us. Sure. Let's hear what the Word of God says. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to 
used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking them to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his eyes on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised, himself, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his, and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Perfect. Yeah, so we see here another, another miracle being performed, um, this time by Peter specifically, of this lame man being healed, a man who could not walk. His legs did not work. Um, he's having to be brought every day to the temple to beg for money. And what's so interesting is that everybody there can verify that this is a miracle, being that this man has been placed outside the temple every day. They all would recognize him. They've all had him ask for money. Um, they all know this guy. And so to see this guy leaping around, it says, and praising God, this is an undeniable miracle. And once again, all this attention starts coming to the apostles, to Peter and John, because they're there who have performed this miracle. And so what do they do with all this attention? They redirect it. They redirect the attention from themselves, and they point it to God. And they start telling the people what God has done. And they preach. Peter preaches another sermon with this crowd. Um, and basically all we did last week was look at the first sermon of Peter. We looked at it pretty much in detail, as much as we can in this class. And, and what's interesting is this sermon he preaches right here in the next chapter is very similar, very similar in many ways um, to, the, to the sermon we already looked, looked at. So all I want to do is just look at a couple distinctives. We're not going to go through the whole second sermon. We're just going to look at a couple distinctives that's different from this sermon from his first sermon. And the first thing we want to look at is look at verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19 of Peter's sermon. Because um, here, this is where Peter's going to, he's going to preach Christ. He's going to preach what God has done. He's going to tell the people now what they must do to have their sins forgiven. Okay? And notice there in verse 19, it says this. See if you can see anything that's different, that's missing from this time that he presents what people must do to be saved, as opposed to what we heard last week in chapter 2. This time in verse 19, he says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Now, what was missing, what um, command was missing from what Peter said last week? Does anybody remember? Baptism. Exactly. Baptism. Baptism, he does not even mention here. And so I, I bring that up to make the point, is, is Peter forgetting to mention something necessary for somebody to be saved? Is he forgetting the the actual act of obedience that actually cleanses somebody from their sins? Did he forget to mention something they actually need to do to be saved? Of course not. Of course not. But many take, as we said last week in Acts 2.38, um, that Peter does mention baptism in the same breath as he's talking to people about what they must do to be saved. Um, there's many groups, uh, Church of Christ, Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, any, any and every works righteous um, group um, always throws in the act of baptism as being necessary for somebody to be saved, right? And we looked at Acts 2.38. Well, that's one of their verses. I mean, you're going to hear it every time you try to share the gospel with them. Is they're always including baptism every time. 
And so, as we all know, um, we understand what the Bible teaches about salvation. We know that the Bible's very clear repeatedly in all, in all type of didactic literature, which means whenever um, the apostles or maybe the apostle Paul is going into great detail in Romans, for instance, when he's explaining how you're saved, guess what he doesn't mention? Baptism, you know. Um, just for instance, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at the end, you kind of see the Apostle Paul's view of baptism. Now, I'm not trying to say Apostle Paul has a low view of baptism. I think he has a very, very high view of baptism. But his view of baptism in comparison to the gospel, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, so if baptism was necessary for salvation, and Christ did not even command him to, you know, that's not his mission to baptize, then the Apostle Paul's not accomplishing much. But he knows that the preaching of the gospel is what's of importance. And so he says, Christ did not send me to preach the, uh, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, because that's the power of God to salvation. Yes, sir, do you have something? Yes, uh, these uh, movements, uh, all these quotes, Church of Christ, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, mm-hmm. Christian Science, all these that established these points uh, came, out of, you know, came out of the 1800s, 1850s. Alexander Campbell, his father Joseph, and Walter Scott, mm-hmm. where they tried to put uh, a yoke on people, and yes, we are the people who restore the true church. Right, the restoration movement and right. stuff like that. It came from there. Yeah, it's kind of funny how they all come out of the 1800s, right? They're all, well, none of the churches are right. Let's, let's be the right church, you know. Mm-hmm. Kind of a coincidence, right? They all kind of... Joseph Smith was Joseph Smith. They, they communicate each other in those days. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. A lot of similarities between them, too, because they had such basic foundations. You know, some people, some people cannot handle the gospel of grace. That's what repels people. They can't grasp that concept that you're saved by grace, not by what you do. That's what the worldly person doesn't like. Everybody wants to take some part of their salvation, so... If baptism can be that, that act that they can attribute to themselves and their good works, they love it. They, they'll gra- grasp onto that. Um, let's look at a... Thanks, brother. That's that a good word. Um, let's look at another point, another distinction between the second sermon here and the first sermon. And, uh, and really, there's a couple instances of this, is that Peter quotes different Old Testament passages than he did in his first sermon. In his first sermon, he quoted some Old Testament passages, mostly from the Psalms, um, as pointing to Jesus as being the Christ, as being the fulfillment of prophecy. Here in the second sermon, he uses different texts from the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And uh, as we go through the book of Acts and even in other passages and other uh, epistles by the apostles, it shouldn't surprise us that they use so many different texts from the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Christ. It's because even here, look at verse 18, Peter um, explains that all of the Old Testament prophets were speaking of Christ. Verse 18 says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So he says by the mouth of all the prophets were saying that Christ would suffer. Now how does that work out? Well, they, all the prophets um, spoke of Christ with tithes with shadows, with specific prophecies about the Messiah, many different ways they did this. But Peter's point is that all the text has been pointing us to Christ all this time. It shouldn't surprise you. It's easy for him to prove that Jesus is the Christ because of all the the Old Testament scriptures that they had. They had many options um, to draw from when they were trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And here in in chapter 3 in this sermon, um, he, he pulls two 
Old Testament quotes out that are two of the most significant Old Testament passages um, to the Jewish people. Um, notice in verse 22, um, he pulls, Peter pulls out a quote from Deuteronomy 18 where Moses is speaking, and it's probably all, in all caps in your Bible, maybe italicized to show that it's an Old Testament quote. But verse 22 says this, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, this is Moses speaking, and to him you shall give heed. So this prophecy of Moses that another is going to come after him, another prophet he describes him as, is something that um, the Jews had been looking for a fulfillment of all the way up until Jesus. Through Jeremiah, through Isaiah, through all the minor prophets, none of those people fulfilled this. And maybe an example of that is John 6, if you remember in John 6 where Jesus does the miracle of multiplying breads and fish um, which, which is from just a few. This is what the people see when they see that miracle. This is what they say. They say, this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. You know, the articular use of the prophet. This, is, this has got to be that prophet that Moses was speaking of. So they, they understand that they're still looking for the prophet, and they see Jesus' miracles, and this is him. This is him that Moses was speaking of. The next quote from the Old Testament is found in verse 25. In verse 25, this is a quote from Genesis 22 that Peter uses to show that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And in uh, Genesis 22:18, God is speaking to Abraham, and he tells Abraham this. He says, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All through Abraham's seed all the families will be blessed blessed in the whole earth. And so there, Peter uses that text in the same way that Paul uses it in Galatians 3. Um, we actually went through Galatians in Sunday school here in the same format, and we really talked about this prophecy because Paul brings it up, is that God's telling Abraham that through his seed, all the, all the nations will be blessed. And what God did not mean was he was not telling Abraham that through all of your descendants, through all of the people of Israel, the nations will be blessed. Paul's very specific to say that what God was saying is that through Abraham's seed, singular, through one of Abraham's seed, would come one who would bless all the nations. And here, um, again, the, 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 the promise is fulfilled in Christ. The, the son of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, is Jesus Christ, who through his death is going to reconcile the world to himself. He's going to make a, a sacrifice that will save even Gentiles, not just Jews. And so that was a promise given all the way back in the book of Genesis. Um, so other than these, um, just few distinctives. If you read the two sermons, they're very, very similar. The apostles here and through the book of Acts are going to preach Christ. The sermons are going to be the same. They're preaching Christ. They're preaching his death. They're preaching his resurrection. Um, they're going to tell people that they must... Um, repent and believe in, in what Christ has done, and that message is not going to change. And so for us, I just say, in the same way, our message should not change. Many people say, you know, there's a lot of like evangelists, and they say, well, it sounds like a broken record. Well, you should sound like a broken record because the gospel message is not going to change. We're to preach Christ. We're not to preach um, ourselves. We're not to preach our system of, of works. We're not to preach our moralism. We're to preach Christ and his righteousness. And that, that message should never change. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're preaching or teaching in the church. It doesn't matter if you're preaching on the streets. We preach Christ. We preach him. That, that message should never change. Um, 
And look at why it's so important to remember this. If you just want to glance your eyes over, we'll kind of jump ahead just real quick and then come back. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. This is why you must preach Christ and no one else. Because Acts 4.12 says, this is Peter again saying, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No options. There's only Christ. So what else are we going to preach? There's only one name being given. That's the only name we're going to give is Christ and what he's done. So it's very important for us to follow um, the apostolic example here. Never get off. Never get off. Never get tired of preaching Christ. Um, that's Peter's second sermon. Any questions, comments, before we move on to chapter 4? What would you say to someone who said the act of baptism is part of obedience? Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. But that it's required. Um, that it's required. Have faith and be baptized in obedience. Right. Well, the problem with saying that is as soon as you say that any act of obedience is necessary for salvation, you're leaving the, the gospel message that you're saved by faith alone. You know, so you really have to take a, a view of the entire scripture at that point. I mean, if Acts 2.38 was the only verse we had in the Bible, I would, I, would, I would probably agree with them and say, oh, yeah, it does look like that's what God's saying. But when you take, we know what Peter's not saying. For instance, I would take him just to the next sermon. Say, if it was necessary, how could Peter forget to mention what was necessary, you know. So I think maybe God put a, basically a repeated sermon right in the next page, maybe for reference, you know. But we know that we're saved by faith. You can take him to Ephesians. You can take him to Titus that says we're not even saved based on our works of righteousness. Not even that, you know. And there's other texts you could, you could show them that we're saved on, on not, based on nothing we do, just on the sovereign grace of God. He decides to save you. You know, there's plenty of places you can take them, but... Um, but I do think you should have an answer for Acts 2.38 and just explain what Peter was saying. You know, you don't just want to run away from the text. I mean, we need to understand what it says. Uh, we want to submit to what the Word of God says, even if it goes against our theology, so we need to deal with it. Um, but Acts 2.38, I, think it, I don't think it's strange. And we kind of talked about this last week, but it's not strange for them to mention baptism in the same breath as repentance and faith because baptism is the first act of obedience. It is what, you should, it is what we should be telling people. Repent and be baptized. Because back then, we talked about this, but baptism was viewed in a very different light than maybe we hold it now. If someone was to get baptized back then, you were taking a step away from your faith, away from the synagogue, away from your family, maybe away from your job. This was a real act of faith that you would not do unless you truly believed. You know, so there's a great distinction between what was happening back now. We can go get baptized and people will pat you on the back. Nobody, no big deal. Let's go to Denny's, you know. That's about all, and then it's done. But back then, baptism symbolized you associating yourself with the church of God, with Christ. It was a huge deal. No small call to be baptized. Yes, sir? Now, did the, did the Jews get baptized for any other reason? Well, the Jews, and, and the Jews? Yeah. yeah, they had plenty of ceremonial washings, you know, different kinds of washings, baptism of repentance, things like that, just like John. You know, they had washings, uh, but to be baptized in Jesus' name, you know, under the whole salvation brought by Jesus was a different, clearly a different call. So that's why I'm sure all those Jews have been baptized many times in, in the sense of just washing, purification, washings. But when you're getting called to be baptized in, in accordance with Jesus, that's completely different than the Old Covenant, you know, Jewish law and all their washings. Yeah, you were, you were, you were going into a whole different direction at that point, whole different covenant. Yes, sir? 
I just want to go a little bit further. I am presently uh, witnessing to in the Church of Christ for about a year and two months. Mm -hmm. Lord, I know the Lord sent me there because they believe these that uh, somehow when you hit the water, somehow you touch the blood. They are not right. preached for it, but anyway. Right. I study the passage a lot. Different uh, theologians. Mm -hmm. But I cannot come to the conclusion when he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, that it's he's referring specifically to water baptism. Mm. Yeah. Because according to the scriptures in Hebrews, it says clearly, leaving the basic teachings, mm -hmm. and one of them is the teaching of instructions about baptisms, plural. Mm -hmm. There's more than one baptism. Yeah. According to the scriptures. In different contexts. Yeah. yeah. So when I study these, and I pursue that because they give me this argument, you know, what baptism is, 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 is a work of obedience. So I investigated it, and I had not come to the conclusion that he's referring to be baptized in water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think clearly he is. And then you see them getting baptized in water throughout the book of Acts. Right, but in that specific uh, first message, mm -hmm. I don't see any way possible. Uh, I haven't come to the conclusion yet, but... Uh, I don't think he's referring, and this is my opinion, yep. to water baptism. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be baptized into, in, in the, into the body of Christ with well, the, the Spirit of God. So the, the reason I think he's speaking of water there is because he be repetitive, because he goes on to say, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it'd be repetitive to say, be baptized, and then you will be baptized. Well, when I came to Christ in 1992, the Spirit of God, of course, convicted me of sin, mm -hmm. of righteousness and judgment. Yeah. And I came to Christ by faith, you know. But then, when I was reading the book of Acts, chapter 8, with the eunuch, mm -hmm. the Ethiopian, I said, I need to be baptized. I was saved already. Right. So I asked the pastor, I want to be baptized. Because the only requisite is to believe with all your heart. Yeah. And yeah. I did. Yeah, I know. So he said, yeah, I take a course. We're taking, having a course in three months. I said, but... I, 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 I love the Lord. Yeah. said, yes, it's, it's going to be good for you. And it was good for me to get more information. Right. But what I'm saying to you, that it doesn't directly refer to water baptism. Mm -hmm. I haven't come to that conclusion yet, but I've studied so many, I mean, yeah. a year yeah. at least. And I, I hear you. Some of the passages in reference to the spirit uh, or baptism are, are more difficult, like the Romans 6. Some people say, well, is Romans 6 talking about spirit baptism or water baptism? You know, um, but I, I think here he's speaking about water baptism because then he refers that then you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So it wouldn't make sense to say, you know, Amelia, do you, you have something? Yeah. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, nowhere in Scripture are you commanded to, to be spiritually baptized. Mm -hmm. Spiritual baptism is synonymous with regeneration. Regeneration is not a, not a, not a man-centered act. Mm -hmm. A person cannot actively pursue spiritual baptism. Mm -hmm. Jesus told him, yes, you must be born again, but, you know, he's not giving instructions on how to do that. Yeah. Because regeneration is a gift of God. Yeah, he's a spirit of blow where it wishes. That's right. Yeah. So, I'll say, not only is that Acts passage, that you write, right after Peter preaches, you know, uh, repentance and baptism, mm -hmm. people get baptized, you know, immersed in water. Yeah. But it's also Peter's obeying the Great Commission, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Obviously, they're speaking about the water baptism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what you find. The pattern of all of Acts is, is that they preach the, the message of repentance and faith, 
and then they baptize disciples. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're Baptists, because we believe in the baptism of disciples only, right. believers only. And that's the pattern you see all throughout Acts. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, definitely referring to water baptism. Let's not get hung up there. Let's not get hung up there. I know. I just want to thank you because I think that's a good a good argument to, 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 to what you just said. I think it's a very good argument. Amen. I'm going to take away. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Okay, so let's go on to chapter 4. Um, so chapter, chapter 3, as we just said, we saw this great miracle of a, of a healing of this crippled man. And uh, we saw all the preaching, uh, all the crowds gathering as a result of this great miracle. And this causes a very great commotion because all this is happening right outside of the temple. Okay, so what happens is the Jewish leaders come and snatch up the apostles, Peter and John, for this great commotion. They put them in jail and they're there overnight. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to point out the fact that even though the persecution here is really about to begin, the persecution and the, and the opposition is about to begin, uh, begin for the apostles, look at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. What's also going to continue to happen? It says, But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And so we are going to start reading about much persecution of the early church, but... The good news is that um, the church is going to continue to grow despite the persecution. That's what, that's what we're going to see is the good news. Okay, so um, they've been held in prison overnight. Um, the next morning, the, the, this council comes together, the, the Jewish leaders come together uh, to, to confront the apostles, to question them. But notice what I think is so important, what's amazing, which is almost another miracle in a sense, uh, let's read verses 15 and following. Notice the depravity. Notice the, the unbelievable unbelief of these Jewish leaders. Um, starting at verse 15, it says, But when they had ordered them to leave the council, so they asked the, the apostles to step out for a minute, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, so that it will not spread any farther among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Now, this is unbelievable unbelief. I mean, they're, they're openly admitting amongst themselves that this miracle just took place. This crippled man, who they all would have known as well, I mean, they work at the temple, they're there all the time, they're going to see him begging. Uh, they, they admit that this is a legitimate miracle being performed, and they do not repent. They do not come to Christ. I mean, it's it's just one of those passages, you know, you talk about the depravity of man. Here's a passage right here that just shows you that signs and miracles do not convert the human soul. Signs and miracles cannot break somebody free from the slavery of sin. It, it will not do the trick. That's only a work of the Spirit. And uh, so that, that's just an example of, of just the, the madness of those who admit to the truth of what's happening and still don't repent. It's really scary um, in a sense. So... Uh, they're called before the Sadducees, which is a, a sect of the, the rulers of the Jerusalem um, temple. They call for the apostles to stop preaching Christ. They tell the apostles, stop preaching Christ, stop preaching in this name. And then in verses 18 and 19, we're going to see really the only biblical um, warrant, um, excuse, not to submit to authorities over you. Verse 18, I'll read it. It says, And when they had summoned them, so they called them back in, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you 
rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so here we see really the only time we are allowed to not um, submit to those who are in authority over us, whether it's husbands, pastors, police, government, whoever, the only time you have to allow by God to not submit is if they are asking you to sin, if they're commanding you to sin. That's the only warrant you have not to submit to um, authority. And Romans 13 teaches clearly that speaking of governmental authority, we have to submit to the government authorities unless they're asking us to do something outrightly um, sinful against God. If you flip over maybe a page, look at Acts 5.29, maybe two pages in my Bible. Peter says it again um, in another instance even more explicitly. This is probably the text most most of you remember. 5.29 says, but Peter and the apostles answered, they said, we must obey God rather than man. And so that's the truth that I was just bringing out there that we see in the text is that they don't, they don't submit to this, this demand of them to stop preaching Christ. They're going to obey God rather than man. So um, that they've been brought forward before these, these leaders. Um, they find really no substance, nothing that they can convict them of. And so the apostles are released. They're released back to the brethren, back to the, the Christian fellowship, where the prayers um, are, are taking place. And uh, I found it interesting, and we, we kind of talked about this a little bit in the men's fellowship yesterday morning. I found it interesting what um, the prayer of the apostles after being released from imprisonment and, 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 threat, and being threatened, what their prayer is not. It's very interesting what their prayer is not, because their prayer is not, God, please never let us get thrown in jail again. That's not what their prayer is. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 tells us what their prayer is. It says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They ask not primarily, and I'm sure it was part of their prayer that they would not be persecuted. I'm sure it was. But I think Luke is pointing out the, the, the main thrust and main idea that they had was that they wanted boldness, confidence to preach Christ. That's their main concern. The, this early church, this spirit-filled church, was more concerned about the glory of God than even their, their own well-being. It's, it's really um, amazing to see and, and really convicting that these are so willing to suffer. Um, they're not afraid. And so, uh, yeah, that's their prayer. They pray, they ask the Lord for confidence. Look at verse 31, because the Lord answers their prayer. It says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. God answers their prayer. And I don't think when it says they were all filled, it's not speaking just of John and Peter. It's speaking of the whole church. The whole church was filled with the, filled with the Spirit of God and went out and, and became bold witnesses of Christ. It wasn't just the apostles who were preaching, um, which again is another convicting um, thing for us as a church. It wasn't just the apostles preaching the gospel with boldness. It was everyone going out to their jobs, going out to their families. They were, they were all boldly proclaiming the gospel. Um, I think... Um, chapter 4, verse 32, this really starts the next, it's kind of like an odd chapter break here, I think. Maybe they didn't want chapter 5 to be too long, but I really think this kind of starts the next section. So is there any questions before we move on to the last section here um, about what was going on, maybe the imprisonment or their answer to the rulers? Just, yes, sir. Uh, just a comment. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, the unbelief to say that these people mm-hmm. actually was rebellion. Yeah. Rebellion. I see something very 
that correlates very much with it is in uh, Acts chapter 13. Remember that sorcerer, the Jewish sorcerer? Yeah. Look what it says here. Look what it says here. It says, uh, third, uh, Acts chapter 13, it says, What verse? Uh, where we can start with, the, uh, we can start with six very quickly. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named by Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elias, the sorceress, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Mm -hmm. something similar. Mm -hmm. Then the Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, or filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elias and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of, of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, here it is. The hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Mm -hmm. Immediately, mess and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. Mm -hmm. So, I conclude with this, that uh, sometimes signs and wonders really can be people. Mm -hmm. If the Spirit is, is using the signs and wonders, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. That's what I to say. Yeah, I mean, I thought of Pharaoh, you know, with Pharaoh in Egypt with Moses. I mean, that guy, talk about a hardened heart, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. That's amazing, the things that he saw and yet continue to have a hardened heart, you know. Summarization, I think, is, is that to the reject the, those that are called and elect, uh, it's, a, it's a work towards regeneration mm -hmm. and condemnation to those who are. Yeah. Uh, you know, condemned to hell, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. But just, yeah, I was trying to say, signs and wonders in of themselves obviously don't do the trick, you know, every time. You know. Well, look at the ministry of Jesus. I mean, nobody yeah. did more signs and wonders than Jesus. Yeah. I mean, they never came to him for, you know, for for his messianic, you know, qualities. They came to him for what they could, you know, their felt needs. You know, they said, look, you don't come to me because I did signs. You came to me because you wanted to get your fill of the loaves. Mm -hmm. You know, they wanted to see what kind of food or finances or power they could get from But, you know, yeah. it's like, but signs are just that. They're just signs. They're just pointing people to the worth of Christ. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, even Jesus said, right? I mean, that even if someone raises rises from the dead, they won't believe. Right. Yeah. Christ. I mean, that's the ultimate proof that yeah, signs in and of themselves they do nothing for you. Yeah. You know? Amen. There's denominations out there like that. It's Basically, put all their trust in the signs and wonders. Well, that's all they want. Yeah, that's all they care about. Yeah. Well, evidently, it's only us because they keep wanting more. They keep needing more. <laughs> Okay, let's go on, because this is the last section here. Um, and the last section, I think, is really beginning in verse 32. Um, this is going to take us into chapter 5. Um, did you have some? Well, I'm just wondering, did you cover... What? Um, verses, uh, 429? Uh, no, 23 and following. You didn't do that part? Um, 423 and following? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Not really. I mean, I read, I skipped down to where the place was shaken. They went out and preached the, the Word of God with boldness. Um, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I'm going to have to no, skip some okay. things. Um, so, yeah, let's go to 32. Um, 
And let me just read a few verses here. Starting in verse 32, it says, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We're going to see that being repeated over and over. That's what they're giving testimony of is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the, proce- the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as, as any had need. And so here we just see again that the Spirit is truly working in these early churches. We see just the, the beautiful fruit of, of those being willing to share really anything and everything that they had. Um, and I, and I think it's amazing because look at the examples that are giving of what was shared. They weren't selling their old baseball cards or pawning, you know, the broken weed eaters. It says that they were, they were selling houses and lands. That's pretty, um, that's pretty amazing. So that just goes to show you what type of unity, what these people's view of, of the church, what their view was, was of poor believers, um, they believed that all were one in Christ, that all was part of the body of Christ, that all deserved to be taken care of. Um, and with a lot of this right here, it gets kind of sticky because um, I just want to make the point that this isn't like a, an infancy stage of Obamacare. This isn't some sort of communism going on. That's not what's going on. This is just purely believers um, so believing that their reward is in heaven and not on earth that they have an open hand to share. That's all, that's all this is. Everybody is an equal member of the body of Christ, and so everybody wants to be taken care of. Uh, we'll look at a text in just a minute that can prove that, that these people were not under, under any compulsion. The apostles weren't making them sell their things. You know, it wasn't part of becoming a Christian as you go sell all your stuff. We'll, we'll see that um, in a minute. Um, so what, what the text is going to get us now, Luke's going to show us a couple of examples of people who were giving to the church in this manner, um, one good example and one not-so-virtuous example. The first, let's look at the first good example. Verse 36, it says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, he owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it down at the apostles' feet. Barnabas. We're going to meet Barnabas um, throughout the book of Acts. He's going to end up being a very um, primary worker um, with the apostle Paul and the apostles' Um, spreading of the gospel. So he's the the righteous example. He has land, he sells, he gives it to the church. Now let's look at what is really a a dreadful description of an unrighteous giving um, to the church. And uh, as ugly as this description is, I was kind of glad to get to study this section because I always looked, I always wanted to find a, a passage of scripture, you know, where somebody's slain in the spirit. You know, they always talk about people getting slain. So I always wanted to find one. Here's Here's the only place I could find in Scripture of somebody getting slain in the Spirit. Um, So let's read the first four verses here. It says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And they they kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, and this is an important verse, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? 
You have not lied to men, but to God. And so a couple things from this passage here. Uh, first of all, as I told you, I think this verse 4 explicitly tells us that this was not a, uh, under compulsion for these people to give. Peter tells them, Ananias, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Was not that property yours? You could have done whatever you wanted with it. Um, after you sold it, why, why did you lie about how much you gave? You could have given whatever you wanted, is what he's telling him. He wasn't under compulsion to, to give this property to the church. Um, I just think that's important to see as we see the, the people being so willing to, to give their things. It wasn't under compulsion. Uh, but unfortunately, Ananias' heart was filled by Satan. It says um, Ananias was seeking the praise of man. He probably wanted to, to look really good in front of the church, you know, show everybody what he was willing to, to give, how godly he was. Uh, but in the process, he lied to the Holy Spirit um, about a- how much he actually gave. And then here it is in verse 5. It says, and as he heard these words, as he heard Peter confronting him with the truth of, of what he had done, it says, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. <clears throat> And great fear came over all who heard of it. Um, Ananias died. And we're going to see his wife coming in three hours later with the same lie, the same deceit against the Holy Spirit, and she's going to die as well. She's going to die as well at the command of, uh, of God. She's going to be struck down. And uh, look at verse 11 and 12. Look at the reaction of all the people to this um, judgment of God. Verse 11 and 12 says, And a great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, but the people held them in high esteem. And so this this judgment of God on on this line of Ananias and Sapphira, it brought a, a great fear amongst the people. I mean, could you imagine? They brought just a great reverence, even not only of those in the church, but also the unbelievers. You know, they're, they're thinking, wow, um, the holy God of this early church was, was no one to mess with. Um, and, it, and, and the holy God is, was too much for some people to take. They didn't want to, they didn't want to mess with it. They didn't want anything to do with, with this church. Um, one lie and you could be killed. I mean, that's, that's a high standard they were thinking. They didn't want to go to church there. Um, but I'm glad that this, this isn't the, the normative outworking, you know, of God's judgment. I think if it was, we'd, there may not be anybody here um, for Sunday school. We'd probably all be dead. Uh, but I think God uses this, this act um, just to dis- display to the world, to the believers of the early church, how he wanted his church to be. Okay? The church is to be a place of holiness. It was to be a, a place of holiness, a people of holiness. That's what God's trying to convey to the church um, and also to even the unbelievers who heard of this, is that sin is not a laughing matter. Um, it's not a joke. Um, these people were, were dropped dead as a result of what we might consider just a little, little white lie. You know, that's, that's how holy our God is. Some, some may think, wow, God, that's, that's not my God, maybe. That's a little uncalled for. That's a little rash. You know, isn't he going to hurt the church growth by killing people? You know, isn't that going to, you know, but it's not going to stunt church growth because look at verse 14, the very next verse after this judgment of God, it says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. 
You know, when the Spirit converts somebody, they're not afraid of, of the holiness of God in that sense. They want a holy God. They want to be there. You know, so that's, that's good. And as I said, I don't think this type of slaying um, in the Spirit is normative. It doesn't appear to be. I'm, I'm sure I would be dead already. Um, I'm glad he doesn't, doesn't always act out like this. But what's interesting is, you know, when we, when we quote and we read to the church, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, in, in dealing with the Lord's Supper, um, there's another very similar reference, I think, there that Paul makes to those who have, are coming to the church, taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Um, he uses, you may know what I'm speaking of, but he says this in 1130. He says, he's speaking to those who are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He says, for this reason, many are weak and sick and a number sleep. So there again, we see a reference to almost just this outworking of, of physical problems as a result of unrepentant sin. You know? There's another reference of it. Um, I don't know, as I said, how much um, of this God continues to do with us, um, but I I think it's always safe and you always want to err on the side of holiness. You know, I don't want to wonder, am I sick because I've sinned? Did I die because of sin? You know, I don't want to wonder those things. Um, As Emilio's been been painting the portrait of, of Paul before us, the Apostle Paul, if you just want to live your life with a clear conscience before God, walk before Him. If you get sick, you can know God has other plans in that and for that. He'll work it out to good for another reason. But, you know, just walk with a clear conscience before God. If you confess your sins, He'll forgive you your sins. Right? So just walk with a clear conscience before God. You won't have to worry about this. You won't have to worry if you're sick because of sin. Um, Just walk before the Lord with a clear conscience. Um, In verse 17 and following, um, this really intense, Apostolic ministry is continuing here with signs and wonders. And remember, all of this is going on right outside of the temple, right outside of the temple of Solomon's portico, this little covered area. Um, this is where all this is going down. Verse 17 says, But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Here we go. Arrested again. And then verse 19 says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened up the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. So they get thrown in jail for preaching again. The angel releases them. They go right back to the same place, preaching and teaching Christ again. Um, It's amazing. The next morning... um, all the, the Sanhedrin, as it's called, just the whole group of, a group of Pharisees, Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, this whole group of, of the, the Jewish authorities, um, in the morning, uh, they, they, they come to have this council meeting where they're going to call the apostles before them to hold them accountable again. They notice in the morning the apostles are not, that, they're not there. Um, in verse 26 it says, the captain of the guard um, went along with the officers and proceeded to go get them and bring them back. It says, but he's bringing them back without violence because they fear the people. Or what does it say? That they're afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Um, the people are for the apostles at this point. They're doing great signs and wonders. All of their family members are being healed. They're believing the gospel. At this point, even the conservative um, commentaries say up to 20,000 people could have been converted by this point, 20,000. That's just going back to where he said 5,000 men had been saved. Right, that was just the men, so family members, wives, um, children even. Um, 20,000 
had been converted to Christ through all this, this preaching. Now the high priest is going to take his, uh, uh, his turn again at attempting to intimidate the apostles. Um, he's going to speak directly to them. And let's read verse 29, how effective the high priest's threats are. It says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obeys him. And so we see even again in front of the high priest himself, Christ fulfilling this promise that he gave to his disciples that um, when you go before kings and authorities and when you get called before these Jewish rulers, don't worry about what you're going to say the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words. We see this boldness and the words being given to them. And, of course, what words is the Holy Spirit going to give you? Um, Christ. They preach Christ. Um, they take the opportunity to just turn the tables and preach Christ right to the, right to the leaders. Um, the, we're going to skip this section because it is time to go. But, interestingly enough, um, the Apostle Paul, when he was saw his teacher Gamaliel, is going to convince the... Uh, the, the Sanhedrin to release the apostles. He's afraid that they might be actually warring against God. He says, hey, these guys could be of God. If they are, you don't want to um, fight God. Let's let them go and see what happens. He, he convinces them. They let him go. Um, but let's just read the last verses in chapter, uh, chapter 5, um, verse 40. It says, they took his advice. They took Amelia's advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. They did give them 39 lashes is probably what that's referring to. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, every day, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so that's what we have in the early church. Um, no fear of persecution, boldness given to them by the Holy Spirit to continue preaching Christ. And that's the message for us to bring home for us, is to continue preaching Christ. Um, don't worry about what fruit you see, you may not see. As we said, the spirit blows where it wishes. Our, our call is to be faithful. And let's preach Christ. Okay, let's pray and we'll go. And remember that anybody who's got children, please try to get over there really quickly because I already broke my own rule. It's two minutes after. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word, God, that we see um, your disciples, your apostles, um, being faithful unto persecution, God, to, to preach Christ. Uh, may you give us the same faith, God, as persecution, I'm sure, is on the horizon for us as well, God, unless you act. Father, I pray that even through this, this small teaching in Sunday school, God, that you would prepare our hearts, Father, to suffer for your name. Um, we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Bless Pastor Emilio and his preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.